It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. On August 21st, 2020, Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. It was an unusual sight to see. D'Angelo, at 74 years old, was wheeled across the courtroom wearing an orange prison jumpsuit with a drooping, weathered face. To see such a feeble old man handcuffed to a wheelchair, you wouldn't assume him to be capable of such heinous crimes. But this worn and wrinkled face was a mystery to law enforcement for decades as they worked relentlessly to unmask one of the country's most feared criminals, the Golden State Killer. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Joseph D'Angelo was a man of many names. To his neighbors, he was Crazy Joe, a man known to have unpredictable outbursts. Little did they know that to local police and investigators, he was known as something else, the Visalia Ransacker. That was the name first given to D'Angelo when his crimes across San Joaquin Valley consisted of breaking into homes and burglarizing them. In 1976, he became known as the East Area Rapist. During this time, D'Angelo would stalk and prey upon women in middle-class neighborhoods across Sacramento. While at first he preferred sexually assaulting women who were home alone or home with their children, his targets soon evolved to couples. No one seemed safe, as D'Angelo was seamlessly able to break into families' homes, threaten, bind, and assault his victims, only to leave without a trace. By 1979, he once again grew more violent and was dubbed the original Night Stalker. Reports of murders would plague Southern California for years, as couples and lone women were either shot or bludgeoned to death. D'Angelo was ultimately responsible for over 100 burglaries, over 50 rapes, and at least 13 homicides. For decades, law enforcement agents worked tirelessly to uncover the identity of this monster whose face was always hidden behind a mask. It wasn't until 2018 that D'Angelo was finally arrested in connection for his crimes as the Golden State Killer. Joining me today is Julia Cowley, a woman who can speak to the tremendous effort and work that was put into this case. A retired FBI agent and profiler, Julia spent 22 years investigating various violent crimes. As a member of the FBI's Elite Behavioral Analysis Unit and the lead profiler on the case, Julia helped create a behavioral profile for D'Angelo, playing a pivotal role in his identification and arrest. Julia, welcome. I'm so grateful to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me today. So walk us through the beginning. And how about bringing us back to your story, which how you got into behavioral analysis at that elite unit of the FBI? Sure. So I'll just start when I was a young child from the very beginning. (laughs) I was a true crime fan and I borrowed my mom's uh, book she was reading. It was Helter Skelter. 
And I must have been in middle school at the time. And she told me, you're too young to read it. And after she put it down and she was done, I took it and I read it. And from that point on, I just knew somehow I wanted to be involved in solving murders or, or crime in general. And then another book that influenced me quite a bit was The Blooding by Joseph Wamba. And that followed the case of a serial murder in the UK and the first time that DNA was used to identify an offender. And then another book that influenced me, of course, was Mind Hunter by the legendary John Douglas. And I think at that point I knew if somehow I could get into the FBI, I would love to be in the behavioral analysis unit. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of led to my discovery that that's what I wanted to do. And I started out at the local level. I was a forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. So I have a scientific background. Chemistry was my major. And then I had a colleague who joined the FBI and we kept in touch and he would tell me how great it is, the cases he was working on. And then a couple of years after him, I decided I would join the FBI as well. And I was originally assigned to a white collar squad, (laughs) bank fraud to be exact. And I thought, oh, I know nothing about bank fraud. But it was really the best thing that happened to me because it taught me how to conduct a very detailed investigation. And then from there, I went to public corruption and civil rights. And I worked that for eight years. And again, that was the kind of work that taught me to be very detailed. It taught me to be a really good FBI agent. In the meantime, I kept up my skills in forensics. I was part of the evidence response team in my division, which was the Boston division. And I became a team leader on on the evidence response team. And I also became what's known as an NCAVC coordinator. And that was for our division. And that's the person who is the liaison between state and local law enforcement within the FBI division that you're in and the behavioral analysis unit. So that got me exposure to the BAU and sort of got my foot into the door. And then there was an opening in the Crimes Against Adults Unit, which I applied for, and somehow I was selected. <laughs> so, and, and in, within that unit that I was in, there were eight profilers. And of those eight profilers, what was the geographic realm that you covered? How, how much of the country does eight BAU profilers cover? We covered the world for crimes against adults. It, it really, you know, yeah. a lot of international law enforcement agencies have their own behavioral analysis units now, but a lot of times, and, and I never got to travel internationally in terms of doing a case, but, um, a lot of my colleagues would travel internationally to help other law enforcement agencies, either with training them or helping them on a case that they had never seen before. So we we covered the entire world. And and back in the, uh, I don't want to say olden days, but when, when I was, a, you know, wanting to become an FBI agent and then a young agent, the BAUs, they were broken up geographically. And certain, you know, the unit you were in covered a certain part of the country. By the time I got there, they had broken it up more into violations like crimes against children, crimes against adults, terrorism, threats. And so when I applied, I was applying to the crimes against adults unit, which is the unit I wanted to be in. 
I didn't really want to be in any other unit. I, I did end up working cases in the other units through my training, but I really wanted to be focused on crimes against adults and, and specifically really bizarre, unusual types of cases and serial murder. Mm. Which sounds like the helter skelter influence uh, coming through. Um, oh, there, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, and so, so that listeners can appreciate the volume management here. If eight BAUs are responsible for the world, um, obviously there are a million variables. But on average, how long does it take to compile a profile, or what would be the range of how long it takes to compile a profile, so that listeners can appreciate how that volume management was undergone by you guys? It really depends on the case itself. Most cases we were working were single homicides. And so those don't take as long because you're just looking at one case, one offense, and there's not as much evidence. In a case where you're looking at a, a series of murders, and in this case, they, you know, we had a whole series. It, it took a really long time. That can take longer. So I would say in, on average, when you have just one single homicide that you're looking at, depending on what the investigators are able to provide, sometimes we would tell them, we need more information. We need you to go out and let's say develop victimology a little bit more for us. And so we might send them back out to, to get a few more questions answered. But Typically, starting from beginning to end and looking at it and trying to come up with what we would call the pro a profile of an unknown offender, which would be, you know, what are characteristics of this this person that committed this crime? It, it could take anywhere from a few weeks to a couple months from beginning to end to, to do something that's really thorough. And in a case like this and the Golden State Killer, it took me six months to a year to really go through everything and come up with a profile of the offender that I thought was accurate. Final question, final global question before we dive into the Golden State Killer case specifically. And that is what I glean from your background is one of meticulous painstaking data analysis and a methodical approach, right? That's obvious, I think. So for listeners who equate behavioral analysis with a form of psychology, how does the BAU, how, you know, what, what body of work or what, um, you know, what's re, what, so, what ultimate authority and source are these conclusions derived from as you, your training brought you there and then developed while you were there, how is a chemist by nature and then, you know, forensic, financial forensic anal analysts sort of how do they become an expert in behavioral analysis? So when you get to the unit, I mean, as you know, it's kind of different than the movies portray, but most of the agents that get into one of the units there to become a profiler they have many, many years of investigative experience. And, and that experience can really be anything. And I, and I remember as a young agent talking to somebody in one of the units saying, how can I become best prepared to be in that unit? Do I have to have a psychology background? Do I have to have a violent crime background? And I remember he told me, all you have to do is be a good investigator. If you're a good investigator, 
then when it comes to apply, your work will speak for itself. So there's a number of different backgrounds. So, But once I got to the unit, and I had kind of a unique background because I did have the violent crime background, but I came, came with it from a very specific. I wasn't a reactive agent out working bank robberies and kidnappings or anything like that. I was a, a very different kind of investigator in terms of being a like white collar investigator. But I had that violent crime background through my prior bureau experience of processing homicide scenes and also being on the evidence response team. So I came you know, in with a, a really solid investigative background and knowledge of how to conduct a very thorough and detailed investigation. And I also had that violent crime background. And I think my strength was my ability to recreate what happened at the scene and understand the crime scene dynamics, just based on my background of having processed so many homicide scenes in my past life and in my life in the Boston Division as a member of um, ERT. But once you get to the behavioral analysis unit, there's a lot of training (laughs) that goes into it. And there's when you first get there, there's about four months of just sitting in a classroom. And a lot of it is covering things that some of us already had experience in and other things that we're being exposed to for the first time. So we had a lot of abnormal psychology courses. We spent a week in a medical examiner's office and seeing autopsies and and looking at wounds and wound patterns and, and things like that. We had case presentations and it was really interesting to hear the cases that were successful and the cases that weren't as successful and why they weren't successful. So that's about four months of classroom. And there's a lot more to it. I just can't remember. We had we had one really interesting class on biology of the brain and, and somebody who had studied the brains of people who had been determined through testing to be psychopaths or mm-hmm. high on the psychopathy checklist. So I thought that was really interesting. So we there's a lot of that. And then after you finish your classroom there is a time where you are working in each of the different units and you have at the time I was there we had to work two cases meaning we had to do a profile so to speak of cases within each unit working alongside experienced and certified profilers and once you get through those there's some other requirements as well teaching being able to teach you have to teach some classes and so there's like a checklist you have to go through and depending on the kinds of assignments you're given and how i guess how diligent you are it can take anywhere from about a year to 2 years to become what's what, what we call a certified FBI profiler and you get a little certificate <laughs> that says you're certified in behavioral analysis and it's really the only kind of certification out there there's really no other degrees really out there so that's it's one of a kind and and it's um you know, it, it's a lot of work to get there. So that's how you get trained. And then so much of going over these cases and providing these services, they they really do sometimes just rely on your own experience, your background, your your perspectives. And so I always have to tell people, this is not an exact science. And I think people know that it can be, it can tend to be more of an art form and there's not a lot of research 
in terms of like not a lot of empirical data to say, oh, profiling helps solve cases. It can help focus investigations. It can help, you know, investigators determine what kind of person they're looking for. It can help determine what the motive was of a crime, but it doesn't solve cases. It doesn't, it doesn't catch offenders. It just assists investigators who are investigating these very, sometimes very complex cases or baffling or confusing or unusual cases. So with that amazing entree, now how many years in when you were on the BAU, did you receive the, what we now know as, or now refer to as the Golden State Killer? When did you receive that assignment? And walk us through that looked like, what that looked like for you. Okay. So <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I got this assignment probably about one year in to me being a certified profiler. So I was still fairly new and I was familiar with this case because Back in 2004, and I remember I was on maternity leave and I was watching TV with my son in the middle of the day and I was watching A&E and there was an A&E special and it was a documentary on an offender who was known as the East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker. And, And that's the Golden State Killer's original moniker. And... I became fascinated and I'm like, how do I not really know about this case? Because I considered myself a, a serial killer encyclopedia. And, but once I got into it, I, I realized that you know, this offender sort of flew under the radar because he had been committing sexual assaults in Sacramento during a time period in the 70s. And then he migrated down to Southern California, which is where the homicides occurred. And those were not connected until 2001, and they were connected through DNA. At least a few of the cases were connected. A a few of the homicides were connected to some of the sexual assaults. And the rest of them were not conclusively linked to the offender at the time. So I became very interested in this case, and I followed it. I followed whatever media was out there and and um, the sh- different shows that told the story of, of this case. And then one day my boss called me into his office and he had what looked like a, a communication in front of him. And he said, have you ever heard of the East Area? And I said, East Area Rapist? And he said, yes. And, he, and I said, I have heard of it. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll t- I know what that case is. I'll take the case. And And he said, well, I know you've really wanted to work a a serial murder. And I had worked some other serial murder cases with other people in my unit. I had assisted, but I was not the lead. And so this was a really big opportunity. And I appreciated that he trusted me with such a big case. Although looking back, it was 30 years old. So, you know, earlier you had mentioned, um, the DC sniper case. And and this was very different. I wasn't under pressure in the way that people at that time, because they were trying to develop a profile of somebody as the case is is moving along. And I, I did not have that. I had the benefit of 
you know, this crime, there had been, as far as we knew, nothing connected to this offender since 1986. So this was very old. Nobody's lives were in danger when I was working on it. So, so it was, it was just a a great opportunity for me to sit down and, and really get involved in the case. And so that's how I got involved in it. And I, I think I, like I said, I'd, I'd been certified as a profiler for probably about a year. And, you know, none of these cases, we work alone. Nobody works all by themselves. It's not, not safe. <laughs> you, you need to have someone there to bounce ideas off of, to make sure you don't get tunnel vision. And so I did work with a couple of other people in my unit. One was a crime analyst and the other was another uh, profiler who was uh, senior to me. And they really helped me quite a bit, you know, putting together timelines and going over the profile. And then ultimately, most of my unit, I think there were six of us, took a couple days to go over everything together as a unit and discuss what our thoughts were on the offender. And again, to make sure that I wasn't missing anything, that I wasn't getting tunnel vision. And it it was a really good um, meeting to sit down with everybody and and go through it all. So um, that was the beginning of it. So that's the beginning. Now let's dive into the actual profile and the actual journey over those six months to one year that you spent immersed in the original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killers profile, what did you learn? What did you create? So first, I I just want to kind of describe what profiling is, because I think some people just sort of think about what we see on TV. And, you know, as we've already (laughs) talked about or touched upon, it's really not that exciting. The work to me is exciting, (laughs) but you know, it's really just you're sitting at a desk and reviewing everything. And what it is, what profiling is, it's it's so much more than creating just a profile of an unknown offender. And, and you're really, you're reviewing everything and you're looking at it through a behavioral perspective and, and you're reviewing crime scene photos and autopsy results. And you're looking at the area. What was the crime problem back then? Victimology, trying to develop as much information about these victims and what put them at risk and what made them the selection for this particular offender. And so so that's typically what we call criminal investigative analysis because it really is so much more than just creating this unknown offender profile. And when I was asked or when the behavioral analysis unit was asked to become a part of this investigation, what had happened? It was the first time that all the jurisdictions, so the offender had committed crimes in, I think, over 15 jurisdictions in California, and there hadn't always been a lot of communication. And each jurisdiction didn't have the opportunity to review the case files in other people's jurisdiction. And so what was part of our work was to create, and I, and I did not do this. It was a crime analyst that did do this, who created a database where everyone could submit their files and every other jurisdiction could read it. And that's 
you know, that's, that's pretty great. That's, it's really great that they decided this is what needed to be done. And it, a working group was formed. And um, so when that working group was formed, one of the local NCABC coordinators, one of the coordinators that, you know, was a liaison between local law enforcement and the BAU, the position that I held when I was um, in the Boston division, he thought, hey, why don't we get a profile done too while we're at it? You know, what what harm could come of it? So they requested that an updated profile be done. And, and I will say like over the years, like from a long time ago, some there were a couple of profiles that were done on some of the homicides and they were these homicides at the time had not been connected to each other and they were done like back in the the early 80s so they were very outdated it, it was a you know a behavioral analysis has developed since that time so they wanted an, an up, updated profile and so that became my mission. But what I also want to say is that, you know, in looking at any case, any case that comes in, you know, there, you start reading through it and you, you start to think, you know, I, I really think I need to try to answer certain questions for investigators and a couple of the questions in addition to, okay, what kind of person are you looking for? What are his, what are his characteristics were, um, but in addition to that, I wanted to link cases together behaviorally. And prior to the onset of the sexual assaults in Sacramento, there had been a series of burglaries in Visalia, California, which is about four hours from Sacramento. And many investigators believed that the Visalia ransacker was also the East Area Rapist. And many investigators believed that it wasn't the same person. So I felt like I needed to try to answer that question for the investigators because answering that question can help develop even more leads. Because if you can, do, if you can identify the Visalia ransacker, you may very well be identifying the uh, East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, and you know, the Golden State Killer, who became known as the Golden State Killer. So... That's what I thought I had to do. And then I also wanted to go through and see if there's anything I can offer in terms of suggestions of how to try to identify who this is. And here's where I want to set some expectations for your listeners. It, it, there were like seven to 8,000 potential suspects on their suspect list at any one time. So trying to develop a profile and then say, okay, let's overlay this profile on your suspects. Impossible. <laughs> it's just impossible. And I thought it was really important to stress to them that this is not going to solve the crime. What's going to solve the crime is that you the fact that you have DNA. But can this profile somehow lead to the identification of additional suspects or certain suspects that may have stood out over the years to investigators that they never quite forgot about or never felt like they could rule out? So I thought, well, you know, maybe that could help make somebody on the list stand out or develop other lists. So 
or develop more people for the list. And that's why I wanted to see, if, is there anything that we can offer in terms of investigative suggestions? And so that was sort of my goal when I set out to assist. And I'd like to also say that we don't get involved in these cases unless the state or local authorities invite us and, and request our assistance. And that's all we are. We are just providing assistance. We don't take over the case. The case remains their investigation. And anything that we provide, they can take it or leave it. <laughs> they do not have to do what we say or or even believe what we say. And so and that's fine. So we don't take over. We just we just provide another set of eyes, like, you know, for, through a different lens, and we're not involved directly in the investigation. Unlike TV, we're not out there arresting people and <laughs> conducting the interviews. That's that's the investigator's job. So that, you know, that's what I, I always kind of felt, like, especially as a forensic scientist, is that, you know, I'd like to be helpful. I'd like to provide um a better understanding of the offense, including motivations and the victim selection process, the crime and the crime scene dynamics. Um, focus and investigation in terms of if they do have a suspect or they have multiple, can we prioritize those? Like who's most likely to fit this profile? And so that was kind of what I what I set out to do. And so you know, my expectations were I, I am not going to be identifying <laughs> this individual specifically, but hopefully someday when they do, you know, maybe this will help people understand him better. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. To me, what I'm hearing, you know, you're sort of the informational equivalent, not of a sniper, but of a smoke bomb where you are fleshing out and flushing out sort of anyone that might be caught up in this very cerebral trap and net that has identified through painstaking data analysis who would be likely here. You're not coming out with the kill shot of it's this name you are saying here based on all of this collection and filtering the ultimate Baleen system. So let's start there then with the Visalia ransacker and what you discovered, because I, I was so intrigued and fascinated, frankly, by your by what happened with that and what led to your conclusion. Okay. So yeah. the investigators who did not think the Visalia ransacker was also the Golden State Killer really based that on the composite sketches and, and the descriptions. So the Visalia ransacker had a, a different description than the, the the individuals in Sacramento who had perhaps or maybe had seen the East Area Rapist. And I'm sorry, I'm using these names interchangeably. I just, it's hard for me to get over calling him. I always know him as the East Area Rapist. So totally, um, but it's, it's the that. same, it's the same person. And so it was really based on that. They just had very different descriptions. And so what I did is I requested all of the, um, incident reports from the burglaries and they had them and there were over, 
I, I'm, I can't remember, it's over a hundred incident reports. And they were very short because especially at the beginning, at the beginning of the series, which, and I should say the Visalia ransackings began in April of, uh, about April of 1974. And the, the offender would go in, ransack the house, take items. Um, he would take items of value such as blue, um, blue chip stamps or blue stamps or something like that, which are what little stamps you could put into booklets and those could be used as, as money. Um, he did take some, some valuable items sometimes and he took, and then sometimes those items would be found discarded along, you know, along the road or, or in a ditch or something like that. And, um, he also uh, took a gun from one of the homes, which was eventually um, determined to be a gun used in a murder in Visalia. So, um, but anyway, reading through these reports, especially the early reports, I started noticing, you know, little comments that the the officers, the responding officers would write, like, we found that he had taken lotion and, um, you know, dribbled it down the hall <laughs> of a home. And at one scene, there had been fingerprints in lotion. And one of the things that I was aware of is that the East Area rapist would use lotion as a lubricant when he would sexually assault his victims. There were also some other just very interesting behaviors. Uh, for example, the Bicelia ransacker would put fragile objects on the doorknobs as sort of an alarm system. If anyone came home, the objects would fall and he would know somebody was coming home. Well, that was also something that the East Area Rapist did. He would put items such as um, glass glasses or cup, cups and saucers on the backs of the victims. And he would tell them, if you move, I'll hear the items fall and I'll return to kill you. So that was another kind of alarm system that I thought was very unique. He would steal, the Visalia Ransacker would steal like one earring from a pair of earrings. So it, it just like all this behavior was very symbolic to me. And there were indications he was going into the drawers of the intimate items like, um, you know, bras and panties of, of the fem- or the women who lived in the household. And he would, in one case, he deconstructed a bra. <laughs> so that led me to believe, okay, these are sexual burglaries. And, and while he may be benefiting monetarily, I, I thought there was some behavior that was very symbolic, that was sexual in nature, and very similar to what we saw in the East Area Rapist sexual assaults. And the ransacking in Visalia was, people would come home and, and their homes were just just, I don't want to say destroyed, but he clearly gone through everything and the kind of the intensity of it and, and how often it was occurring was, was very similar to what was going on or what eventually occurred up in Sacramento. So that was what I was learning about the Visalia ransacker. And, and I was you, you're really trying not to get tunnel vision. So I, I really took these cases separately. I looked at Visalia and I said, okay, this is somebody who uh, loves 
being in people's homes and and, and he's not making it a secret. He's not going in there and stealing something and then they, they discover it later. I mean, these people would come home and they would know immediately that their homes had been um, burglarized because he just he left it in, in disarray. And so this person liked to go into homes. He liked to wander around. He liked to touch things. He liked to destroy things. And he, and he did steal some things. And so I felt like this person is the, the ransacking for the Visalia ransacker was extremely important. It wasn't just about going in and taking something and, and benefiting monetarily. There, there was another benefit to this, to him. And because of the nature of it and because there were sexual items used and because of the lotion that being used, I thought perhaps this was sexually motivated burglary, that he was likely using the lotion to uh, masturbate at the scenes. And so that was sort of that isolated look at Visalia. Would you say that at that time for him, potentially, that that was, you know, the the first step in gratification was just the breaking and entering and the destruction and the methodical, you know, parsing out and, and all of the symbolic behavior he engaged in. Um, and do you feel that ultimately that was no longer gratifying, that he then graduated to assault and then homicide? Or do you feel at the time this was, which is typical of um, career criminals in this way, that it's a toe in the water for law enforcement. Essentially, you, you toe in the water to see whether you get away with it, and then you can act fully out on the fantasies that you've constructed. I think this was just the beginning, that this was really important to him and his need to you know, violate people, control them. And this was just the beginning, and it was like an escalation. And, and certainly, as he went along, he was becoming more confident in his abilities. I'm sure the longer he went, he was getting away with these and the more, you know, offenses he got away with, the more confident he became. So yes, in a way he likely was testing and, oh, I got away with that. And, and he just became more brazen and ultimately in Visalia, he attempted to kidnap a young girl out of her home, a, a teenager, and her father intervened and he shot and killed her father. And so that was an escalation. I'm going to try to kidnap this person. And and what he was going to do, I'm, I'm not sure because where I, I don't know where he would have been able to take her. N- now knowing that I know who he is, I'm not sure where he could have taken her. But he did attempt to, to kidnap somebody, and, and, and that was unsuccessful. And unfortunately, um, you know, he, he killed somebody and, and somebody lost their, their life. So I think that he was just becoming confident. He thought, oh, I can get away with that. And so that, that was a setback for him, a, a real setback. And, and then, you know, after that is when things started to happen in Sacramento. So he left the area and moved, um, moved north to Sacramento to start committing the sexual assaults, which the first one I looked at was October of 1975 that I believe to be connected to him. So the Visalia ransackings were from April of 1974 to, I think the last note was December of 1975, 
course, the um, individual during that time was murdered. And then shortly thereafter, he moves up to um, Sacramento. And there's there was a little bit of overlap with the cases. Like, for example, he was still offending in Visalia when the uh, series began in Sacramento. And there was ever so slight overlap. So it wasn't a clean break from Visalia. So I think too, that those people that did not believe that they were one and the same thought, no, no, there's, there's, um, it's not a clean break. There's some overlap, but the, the, um, the crimes didn't happen on the same day. So it was perfectly possible that it could be the same offender. So then what happened, what was the next step in your profile creation? So the next step was reviewing all of the sexual assaults. And there were, I, I believe I looked at about 45 sexual assaults that I believe to be the, the same offender. There were a couple of cases that I looked at that I did not think were linked to him. And there were, there were reasons for that. And I can, I can discuss that. So I, I started looking through and what I noticed and, and, and it took me a while, I would say it took me a while, but you know, what he would do is he would go in to these homes and it was usually late at night, early morning. He would enter either through unlocked doors or windows, or he would break a window, reach in, unlock the door and go in. Or sometimes in some of the cases, the investigators did believe that he had entered the home prior, unlocked a door or wind- window in order to enter later. Um, you know, I never confirmed that, but you know, I'm not going to dispute that. That's very possible. So he would go in and he would wake the victims most of the time while they were asleep and he would shine a flashlight in their eyes, he would bind them and then he would ransack their homes and he'd go through and he was very loud when he did it. And he would open and, you know, um, open cabinets, slam them shut. He would be talking to himself, mumbling. He would pretend or maybe not pretend, but he would guzzle food and gulp food and be very loud, making these like animalistic sounds. And then he'd return and he'd threaten the victims. He'd always tell the victims that he was just there to rob them. I I think that was a way to kind of mitigate the necessity that they would try to intervene or stop him thinking, okay, we'll just let him take what he wants and and he'll leave. And so, um, you know, as I'm going through these cases and I'm, I think I got through maybe the first 10 and I, I'm like, he, he never sexually assaults a victim prior to ransacking the house. And I thought that was key. Like, I just thought that's really huge. So I went back to confirm, okay, from now on, when I start reading these cases, I need to make sure that I am noting whether or not a sexual assault occurs prior to the ransacking. So I started over and I'm like, okay, I I got that right. And so there was not one case where he sexually assaulted a victim in which he did not ransack their home first. And if he sexually assaulted a victim multiple times, he would ransack the homes in between each sexual assault. And I thought this was really important. And it again, it kind of made me think, okay, 
this could very well be linked to the Visalia ransacker. There's just the, the ransacking is so important to him. And there was a case in Sacramento or in the Sacramento area where he took one of the victims out of the home and he took her, you know, out, you know, in, in I don't know, into the woods. And, and I think he might've, he tied her up or something and he did not sexually assault her. And at some point he says, this isn't working and he kicks her and then he runs off. And that victim was not sexually assaulted. Um, and so I thought that was another really important thing that he, he really derives a lot of sexual gratification from the ransacking itself. And um, it, again, there's not one case that I read where any kind of sexual assault took place prior to the ransacking. So that just told me that was so important to his fantasy. And and it really started to make me think that these cases, the Visalia cases and the Sacramento cases were linked. Um, the other thing that I was noticing as I was going through these cases was that he was just sort of, I guess, describing like over the top, you know, over the top trying to be scary. And not that he's not scary, but, you know, he would talk through clenched teeth and he'd make these really brutal threats. And if there were children in the home, he would threaten that he was going to kill the children if the the victims made any sound. And it was, um, you know, he he was just really, I felt trying to create this perception that he was really scary and tough. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to say he's not because it, clearly he was extremely dangerous. And, but I started to think, you know, why, why does he need people to believe he's just so tough and, and he's giving information to them that's not necessary because he would, he would claim military affiliation. He would tell victims, you know, I, you know, say things about that would lead them to believe he was in the military. I think he told one, um, one victim that, you know, he, uh, he had had a lot of sex with when he was in the military. And in another one, there was a, a picture that um, showed the victim at what appeared to be like a military ball or something. And he mentions that to the I saw you at the club. And so and, and he, um, you know, what the victims could see most of the time they were blindfolded after blinding them, he would, you know, blindfold them as well. So he's really trying hard to disguise himself. You know, he wore a mask and, but sometimes they would be able to see a little bit out, out of their blindfold. And, and it appeared he was wearing in some cases, military boots, style boots. And, and there were other shoes too, that were, um, shoe tracks found outside the house where that were like tennis shoes, but um, some victims did report military style boots that they saw. So, you know, I, I just started to think, why is he doing this? Is all so unnecessary, and he's trying to create this perception of being, you know, very tough and scary, and um, and and you know. It, 
trying to align himself with being in the military. And obviously we, we think of people in the military as being strong and brave and courageous and, and all of those, those qualities that we associate, associate with the military. And he wants to align himself, but he's also giving out information that could potentially lead to his identity, which didn't really make sense to me because he was trying so hard to hide his identity with, the the blinding and the blindfolds and wearing a, a ski mask himself and disguising his voice. So why is he putting out that information? So I really thought that it was just a need of his to show like how tough he was and how strong he was. And I started to think that perhaps that's not how he truly feels and that this is probably the ultimate overcompensation for his inadequacy. And his feelings of um, being ineffective, and so that—that's how I started to to view him. And during this series, where when he initially started in Sacramento, he was breaking into homes, and he was only uh, when there were only female victims in the home, or 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 and or their children were there as well. And during this series, um, he started to break into homes where there was a male and female couple in the homes, which some people might think, oh, he's super brave if he's going to break into a home where the female victim has a male companion. And, you know, when he would do that, his behavior was very similar to the behavior when he attacked female victims only. He would blind them, wake them up by shining the flashlight. He would order the female victim to tie up the male victim. He would then tie the female and then he would retie the male and make sure he was bound really well. And then he would leave them and um, you know tell them, I'm just going to rob, rob you. T- tell me where the money is. Tell me, and he'd say, where are the pills? Where, you know, and he'd leave and he'd ransack the home and then eventually he would come back and he would he'd visit them like in between like and threaten them and he always had a weapon a, a gun and or a knife and likely both when he was um committing these crimes and he'd threaten them um to kill them if they moved or made a sound and then he would come up with an excuse to separate the male and the female victims. And he would tell the female, I need you to help me find something, or I need you to help me find your purse. I need it. And he, he'd take the female out of the room. And this is often when he, not all the time, but often leave cups and saucers on the backs of the male victims and saying, I'll, I'll hear you and, and I'll come back and kill you if you move. So he'd separate them and he would sexually assault the female victim in another room. And again, separating them because, again, mitigating the risk. If if the male victim isn't right there, then perhaps he doesn't feel like he needs to act out. And of course, if he's telling the female victim, I only need you to help me find your purse. Again, the male victim is thinking, okay, we just need to, he's always doing is taking, you know, her so that she can help him find money and then he's going to leave. So this was all ways that he was mitigating his risk. But, you know, it, it, it was the same pattern of ransacking sexual assault, ransacking sexual assault 
Sometimes it would only happen one time. Sometimes it would be multiple times, but there was always the ransacking and all the similar behavior, this exaggerated animalistic behavior that he exhibited. Um, so, you know, again, I just started to think that this was not who he really was in his regular life in terms of being strong and controlling. And I, I felt like he likely doesn't feel he's strong or capable. So that those were sort of some of my thoughts when I was starting to review the sexual assault cases in, in Sacramento and in Northern California, those, those ones. And so then moving on to the murder series, what conclusions were you able to draw and the profile that you created um, from his next graduation? There were a couple of things that were pretty significant before he really graduated to murder. And to me, I don't know if I've ever really felt like that I've answered the question, would he have murdered if these two things didn't happen? And I've sort of decided, sort of decided, I've come to the conclusion, likely, yes. So in Southern California in October of 1979, there was an attempted murder. And I say attempted murder because it was a male-female victim. Everything was similar. He broke in, but it went really wrong. The male victim got out of bed, hopped out of the back door into the backyard. And the and when he discovered the male victim had, had left, he went outside to search for him. And then the female victim, who has now been brought out to the living room, is running out the front door, hopping out the front door because she's tied up and she's screaming. So he's got two people, two victims that are just going separate ways and he loses complete control. And in that case, and those victims live next door to an FBI agent who heard the screaming. So he places a call to the sheriff's department and then he jumps in his car and attempts to um, um, apprehend the offender who's hopped on a bicycle and and ultimately the offender escapes. So that was the first time something really went wrong. And one of the reasons that the victims in that case decided like we need to fight back or we need to get out of this situation is because he was mumbling, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill them. You know, and they, they were hearing these and they thought he's going to kill us. And so he, he was like mumbling. And, and that was a, that was a characteristic that I noted, or I shouldn't say I noted that victims noted, um, to when they made their police reports to the officers that he would often be heard talking to himself and mumbling. And sometimes some of the victims, thought there was a second person with him because he was talking. And of course, that wasn't the case. Um, so the, this, um, these victims heard him saying this, and that's what kind of led them to be like, we got to get out of here. We have to escape. And so she's screaming, and the male victim has run out the back, and he, he has just lost complete control. So I don't know if that case was going to play out the same way as the cases in Sacramento. Um, you know, we, I just called it as the investigators did an attempted murder because he could be heard making those threats, but I don't know if it was going to play out the same way. And then the next significant case was in 
December of 1979. So in the same area, in the same town, um, a few months after this attempted murder. And in this case, it was um, Deborah Manning and Robert Offerman. Um, And it appeared from the crime scene that Robert Offerman, the male victim, was able to or fought him before he could bind him completely. And in this case, um, the female victim, uh, Deborah Manning, had not been sexually assaulted. So my thought was perhaps that before he could be bound or, you know, at least, you know, she bound him so loosely that he was able to get out of it before the offender could retie him to the point he couldn't escape. But anyway, he, he gets out of his bindings and he's shot multiple times by the offender and then the offender escapes. So, and there's no signs of the ransacking that we saw in the other cases. So again, this is another case where everything went really wrong and he didn't have an opportunity to carry out what he was ultimately there to do, which is to sexually assault the female victim. So I felt that these were pretty significant events where he lost com- complete control. And and what do we know about him is that he wants to be in control. He wants to control these people. He wants them to know he's in control and that he's in control of their home and he's going through all their belongings. And so I thought maybe this is what ultimately just led to him, you know, taking the ultimate control, which was, you know, in in the rest of the cases that we know of, he killed his victims after the, the, the same sort of behaviors going in, ransacking, sexual assault, and then he ended up killing and bludgeoning his victims to, to death, which was again, the ultimate control. And, um, the last and and you know what what was interesting is there was a break the the murder in July of 1981 and then there was a break a long break where there were no um, no murders or or offenses that were um, could be attributed to him and then the last murder that he's known to have committed is in May of 1986 and so then he stopped completely so. Um, you know, that, that's sort of the summary of all the cases. And, um, I can, I can go over sort of what I thought the profile was, (laughs) you know, and, you know, so what I want to, again, set expectations, you know, this is, um, you know, for people that, I mean, there's like two types of people, I would say, that really think that profiling is the be-all, end-all. And I will tell you that it is not. And there are other people that just believe it is completely uh, worthless and no better than having just a person who has no law enforcement experience come in and guess. So you have kind of like these two sides. And, and you know, my belief is that there is information that you can draw from looking at cases and examining the behavior and you, and you can't, and you're not always going to be right. You, you can't always be right because a lot of it is you, you are sometimes just trying to, you know, put, I don't want to say guess, but you, you know, put yourself into the offender's 
position. Why are they doing this? Why? And 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 that is impossible to do because only the offender knows for sure. So I, I do think it is useful. I, I think it is useful in any investigation. And there's not one case that I have worked on or been a part of that investigators don't say, oh, I never thought of that, or that's interesting, or that is helpful. Um, but I also tell you, I've never been a part of a case or seen a case where a profile has solved the crime. So to set <laughs> to those, I just want to set those expectations. That's why nobody wants me on their shows because <laughs> I'm no fun. And the other thing I want to say is that you can't do, I mean, it's, it's already, um, not an exact science. And so you cannot do a profile when you haven't looked at the case materials. You can't just do it off media reports or or speculation. It is impossible. It's it's even more inexact. And so I don't know how some people do it. I mean, I think there's some general things you can say about a killer um, that you haven't identified. Yeah, I mean, he's selfish or he's narcissistic. I, I mean, you can say that, but that's not super useful. Anybody could say that. Um, and, and I will tell you, if I had tried to develop a profile uh, and I thought I knew a lot. I thought I knew a lot about this offender before I saw the case, the actual case materials. And I would have been wrong. I would have, I think I, I saw him in a completely different light after seeing all the details of this crime. Um, so a couple of the things that I guess I came up with was, um, <laughs> Certainly, and this is going to be like um, very obvious, um, this is sexually motivated. Mm -hmm. And he had fantasies of possessing power and toughness, and he wanted to really intimidate others. And all of these fantasies are expressed throughout his crimes, you know, and I've already touched on this, you know, making the gory threats talking through clenched teeth, claiming military affiliation, um, exhibiting these exaggerated animalistic behavior. He's trying to create this perception. And again, why are you trying to do that? Because you don't really feel that way. And I, I thought the victim selection was really important. And, and so many people, I think, are always focused on, okay, the, the, the female victims. You know, why is he choosing them? And you know, I really felt like in terms of victim selection that the male victims were not just obstacles. They're not just obstacles to overcome. I thought they were key to his fantasy. And he obtained a lot of power or feeling of power by not only engaging in sexual acts with the female victims, but you know, making it so that their male companions were powerless to stop him. And, you know, that, that I just thought that was really important because why take that risk? Why go in and take that risk if you don't need to? And, you know, and, and if he didn't have this, you know, overwhelming urge to show I'm tough and powerful. And so, you know, I think, a, you know, a lot of people may have viewed him. He, he's got to be this big, bad, really tough guy. And that's how he's going to appear to all of us because he's attacking when men are in the home. And, you know, that just really wasn't the case, um, in, in my opinion, <laughs> I'll say. And the other thing I thought, and I thought this could be something that people that know him might 
observe. But in, in the cases where, um, you know, he just became very frustrated when things didn't go right. And one of the things that, um, you know, I, I want to say about him, but I, I don't want it to be misunderstood, is that he wasn't um, gratuitously violent. He did not inflict pain on his victims just to inflict pain. Um, in fact, one victim described him as being gentle. And, and that means he just didn't physically assault her in terms of like punching, hitting. And, and I, I think that's what, um, I think that's what the victim meant. So the only time he became violent and actually physically hurt his victims in terms of really acting out violently was when they resisted him and he, he really became frustrated with them. And he, if they resisted him in any way, he would punch them. He would hit them in one, um, one case. This is gruesome, but he stuck a na nail file in a victim's eye. And this wasn't something that he did because he enjoyed inflicting pain on somebody else. This was what he did when the victims um, resisted him. And so um, I felt like, you know, this escalation right away to violence, I, I can't control it. I'm just going to I'm just going to act out violently, um, really showed that he's probably easily frustrated. And you could hear that or hear that um, the victims could hear that in his tone and, and when he was ransacking and his mumbling there was something interesting that happened in Visalia and he was followed by um, a couple who saw him um, peeping and looking in windows and was confronted by this couple and um, they followed him. And while they were following him, he was just mumbling to himself. And I believe that to be like, probably a real characteristic that when he's frustrated, he talks to himself, he gets, you know, he's mumbles. And, um, and, and that couple in Visalia was very lucky because there was a couple in, um, the Sacramento area who, um, I, I believe did confront him or say something to him and, and he shot and killed them right outside in, in somebody's yard. So, um, that couple was very lucky, but that just shows like when, he realizes he can't control something. He's going to escalate immediately. Um, and most of us are not like that. We're like, okay, let's try this or let's try this. Not this offender. How did you conclude he had a law enforcement background? So uh, the other thing I thought, which kind of goes back to his frustration and not being able to control things is that I felt he was intimidated by other men and particularly intimidated and didn't want to get into any kind of physical fight with them because anytime he lost control, he immediately resulted to deadly force by use of a firearm. And that's dangerous to do. I mean, it draws attention, it's loud, but that was his immediate uh, immediate reaction. So I thought he's, he's just not comfortable in being in a physical fight with another man. So I thought that kind of, again, went to his insecurities and I, I, that was really important. Um, and which again, you know, kind of leads me to this, his use of firearms. So 
his use of firearms was more than just being proficient. Um, I felt he was well-trained because when he did use a firearm, he, he, he did it very quickly and he did it efficiently. He didn't miss. And it was just a, a very, I thought, very natural instinct. And he had um, taken firearms from people's homes. So that showed me he had an interest in firearms, possibly had practiced with them. And there were some other things in, involving, you know, just you know, the use of the flashlight and sort of tactically being able to evade the police uh, for so many years. And, and, and physically, he was, he was physically strong. I mean, he could outrun um, FBI agents in their car. And, and he, did, he did get away. He had been chased a few times. And, you know, I, I really felt that potentially he might have a law enforcement background and could have been a police officer, at least at some point in time. I, I, I didn't know, like, in that time frame. And, you know, a lot of times you will hear when, when offenders escape, um, you know, and get away with multiple crimes. A lot of people say, well, maybe they're, they're a police officer. Maybe they have law enforcement background. That's kind of a common theme. Well, they have to you know, they have to have some inside knowledge. And so I'm, I was, I'm reluctant to really put that characteristic on most offenders. But in this case, I thought, I, I think he might be, um, a, a police officer and, and had, formal training in firearms. And, and so my original draft report that was going to go out to all of the law enforcement agencies contained that. And my um, my supervisor at the time just thought it was a little too much. And so I was I was asked to remove it. And, and, and really, it didn't matter. It didn't change the fact that I thought he had formal firearms training. And, and certainly, the fact that he was a police officer was something that that we discussed in our working group meetings that I was a part of. And a lot of the investigators did believe that um, he could potentially be a law enforcement officer. So it wasn't like they weren't getting information that they should have. It was just like, this is like a little bit too, too detailed. And we don't want to be too detailed because we might be wrong. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just joking. Um, Cause you were right. That's the whole thing. You were right, Julia. Darn just, it. Like where uh, kills dad? me. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Describe for us how the profile finally played out when he was finally apprehended. So when he was apprehended, so he was caught again through you know science and it was forensic genetic genealogy that ultimately identified him and he was arrested. And so when when I got the message, I, I knew something was going on. And you know, once once you do a profile, once you're part of it, you're, you, you're not typically involved in the rest of the investigation. But sometimes people, you know, give you call you and tell you oh, we got something going on here, but I can't really talk too much about it. And you know, I was still an FBI agent, but I think they wanted to try to keep everything really quiet. And so he was he was arrested. And um, you know, my first thought was, you know thank God. And, and, but, um, you know, was how accurate is the profile? And, and I, I felt pretty good about it, but you just have that moment of, you know, th this was a lot of work I put into this and you're really testing, you know, your, your abilities when an offender is finally arrested and you have to match up your profile with that offender. And it really is, you know, am I good at this job or should I just go find, do something else? And so it's really that kind of that, um, you know, that, that moment of truth. 
And when I saw him wheeled in to the courtroom, I felt, you know, pretty good. Yep. I, I think we got him right. And, you know, the one thing is that, you know, which, which we saw throughout these crimes is when his control is taken from him, he implodes. He, he, he doesn't handle it very well. And so, you know, a lot of people when we're surprised by his appearance, you know, he's in a wheelchair. He looks like this frail old man and his mouth gaping open as if he's confused. And, and he wasn't that that was the true Joe D'Angelo. That was the truest form of him when his all his control is taken away from him. And, you know, in, in you know, creating that profile and throughout these these crimes that I viewed, you know, that's that's the person that I saw. And um, I think, um, you know, once once he went back into his cell and, and he's, you know, he's not being questioned or confronted, he, you know, he'll he'll go back to his, you know, normal self where he seems perfectly fine and healthy because nobody's nobody's there controlling him. But when he's being forced to comply and be in control and, and be questioned, um, you know, he's going to completely withdraw and implode and mumble and all of that. And, and all that was um, witnessed by detectives when they attempted to interview him. He, he didn't handle it well. And yeah. was there a history of him with sexual abuse or violence or lack of control that led to his obtaining gratification from the control of others in that way? Was there something that you pointed to in the profile that only in his crimes? Surmised? Yeah. Okay. O- mm-hmm. Only in his crimes. That, that was how he gained his control is, is through, it, it, you know, the, the his crimes and mm-hmm. he expressed himself and his needs and his fantasies through his crimes. Now, some of his behavior, um, you know, just based on reports from law enforcement and detectives that have met with him and talked with him and some of the reports from people that knew him and neighbors, um, certainly a lot of these characteristics were evident. And, and what I'm going to say is just, yeah, yeah, these characters are evident, but nobody thought, oh, he's a serial killer. But when, you know, he did some very strange things and, you know, when he, you know, neighbors would describe him talking to himself in his backyard and pacing. And, you know, at one point he, he called someone and, and threatened to kill their dog when he had a neighbor dispute. And so these, these are all some of the, you know, characteristics that, you know, I thought would be observable. Now, the socially awkward individual um, easily frustrated, starts mumbling when he's frustrated. And then that was, um, you know, that was evident in his normal everyday life. Um, but again, that's not going to necessarily say, oh, he's a serial killer. Come arrest him. He's, you know, the Golden State Killer. And, and that's where, you know, profiles are, are not all that helpful. If you had a set of five suspects, and this has happened in a case where there was a woman murdered, police officers had five good suspects. We did a profile of the offender just by looking at the crime scene. And then we took that profile, overlaid it on the offenders. And one of them just rose right to the top. You know, when you have seven or 8,000 potential suspects, you really can't do that. But moving forward, I mean, I think everyone had a really good understanding of who this offender was. And um, I think that moving forward, the working group 
except for maybe a few holdouts, you know, were able to finally say, okay, he is the Visalia ransacker. And then, you know, kind of leave you with this. There are still a lot of people that think there could potentially be other crimes out there that he, you know, that he's involved in that have just never been solved. Is he responsible? One thing I will say, and, you know, I'm not going to say this with like 100% certainty, but 99% certainty, if you have a case out there where there is a lot of ransacking or a victim says, we ransacked my home, that is likely him. If there's not ransacking involved, I would, I would not prioritize him as a number one suspect, just because that was so key throughout every crime that I know that he's ever committed. Um, and there's another series of burglaries that I've never actually looked at the cases, but from what the detectives tell me, it's, it's very similar. It, it, these, this series happened before Visalia. And so, you know, so, but, but that is, that's where you look at behavior and ransacking should be a part of every single crime that he commits for sexual gratification. So moving forward, if anyone else has cases out there that they've never identified, perhaps they don't have DNA, but it fits kind of the, the time frame of when he was out there offending, even if it's after, um, if there's ransacking involved, I would say, yes, prioritize him as a suspect until you can remove him. And if it's, if no ransacking, I'd say uh, he's probably not a priority suspect. It sounds like they need to call you out of retirement for the original (laughs) series to analyze what could be the prologue. Julia (laughs) Kelly, you're so incredible to listen to. I'm so grateful for your incredible incredible memory, um, your attention to detail, and this absolutely riveting uh, description of your unparalleled experience as a member of the Elite Behavioral Analysis Unit and that fundamental role that you and your very few colleagues played in eventually uh, in profiling the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer, who was a monster that terrorized a lot of people. So thank you for your service. And um, to conclude, I think this pretty much sums it up, which is, Julia, you were right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. To stay up to date on the latest true crime headlines, subscribe to the Fox True Crime Minute with Laura Ingle wherever you listen to podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.